Good morning. It's, it's a blessing to be here. As you heard, our pastors, Jamie and Heidi, are not here, and that has given multiple people in our church the opportunity to, uh, to preach. And so last week we, we looked at Paul in Ephesians, um, Paul being in prison and um, in probably in Rome about 62 AD, and he's writing letters. He has, he has some some opportunity. Uh, I, as I said last week, um, it's not like he's sitting in a dungeon. He actually has some freedom. He's able to interact with people. He's able to write some letters, and this is one of the letters he writes, uh, the letter to the Ephesians. Um, is it possible to get a little bit of loopy echo out of here because it, it, it distracts me? I don't know if that's possible. Dylan? I don't know. It just, it's where my mic is. There you go. This is, this is how you see I'm not a professional, right? Okay. But that's okay. God is still going to do things. So. Um, so we were there in Ephesians. And um, he's writing this to a church in Ephesus. He's actually writing it to a group of churches. And last week we found out that Paul has a wish list. He wants the, the church to know God better. And he says amazing prayer. And then the, the whole text is about how he wants the people in Ephesus to know God better. And we pretty much just continue where we left last week, which is Ephesians 2.11. Now, I'm sorry, it's not going to be on the screen. So if you have a Bible, get it out on your phone. Uh, Ephesians 2, and starting in verse 11, I'll give you just a second to look it up. It's often helpful to read along with Paul, at least I find, because he, he tends to use somewhat complicated sentences, so specifically if you're a visual person, it's nice to, to read along. So let's go there. Ephesians 2.11, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, through which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So, we see here that Paul continues, and um, he uses what I would call exclusion language at the beginning and inclusion language towards the end. So the exclusion language in the beginning starts already with 
saying, you who are Gentiles by birth. Now, the, now, Paul is a Jew. He's talking now to only the Gentiles. And the definition of Gentile itself is to not be a Jew. So it's about as exclusive, right? I mean, you've got the Jews, the in-group, followers of God, and you've got everybody else, the Gentiles, who are not following God. So he starts out with that. And the next thing he says, you're uncircumcised. Now, circumcision, of course, being a physical act where a Jewish boy would get circumcised on the seventh day, and it would be a symbol of the covenant with God. This boy is going to be uh, following God, is going to be part of the people of God. And he says, you are uncircumcised. You are not part of the covenant. Again, exclusion language. He says, you're separate from Christ. You're excluded from citizenship. Now, being excluded from citizenship is, I mean, like, this is, of course, in a spiritual sense, excluded from citizenship. But in our world, there's lots of people who are excluded from citizenship. And it, it makes it almost impossible to do the most basic thing. A friend of ours who lived in Pakistan, but because of persecution had to move to the Netherlands, and it wasn't like he chose the Netherlands to go to. He was like, I get the first flight out of here. And he ended up in the Netherlands. And he, for for years had to go through this process of proving that his story was right, that he really was being persecuted. He wasn't allowed to work. He didn't have any way of uh, money of getting, um, getting a college degree. Luckily, there was a, uh, an organization that we, we supported there as well because they help refugees to get a college degree even though they don't have legal status yet. And so he had some money to do that, but he couldn't participate in the most basic things in Dutch society. So when he finally got his Dutch citizenship, it was party time. He could participate. Being excluded from citizenship has real negative implications. Then Paul continues, you're foreigners uh, to the covenant and of the promise, which I mentioned before, circumcision is kind of similar. And then without hope, without God in the world. Paul just always uses as many different ways of phrasing his point, right? He wants to make sure you were absolutely excluded, there was absolutely no way for you to join. And then all the way to the end of this text, we see the inclusion language. We suddenly see uh, Paul's mentioning, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people. A little bit like our friend having a party because he now finally had citizenship and he could participate in society. And then Paul takes it even one level more intimate. He says, you're members of his household. Now, many of you know that uh, I work for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and we specifically, my job is to reach out to international students. And a lot of international stay in town over the summer. And so we continue our discovery group, as we call it, on, on Friday night. And a few new girls from uh, Rwanda have been joining, and uh, one of them just mentioned this Friday I'm so glad to be here because this feels like a second family. This feels like a family away from home. I think the ideas of being members of a household is super strong. And it's something we're looking for specifically when we're out there away from what, 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 what we know, what our family is. So Paul uses very strong language to say this is real inclusion. And then he continues painting this picture of a temple. The temple being the holiest thing that... The, the Jews had the place where they could worship God and Paul uses this imagery of showing inclusion where you are being built together with the apostles and the disciples but also with the Jews and the Gentiles all being put together Jesus as the cornerstone and God's spirit lives in the midst of that 
And so it's this picture of super-inclusion. Of course, then the question is, how do we get from exclusion to inclusion? And Paul tries to answer that in the center. We see that there was a barrier of hostility, and then we see that Jesus' sacrifice and his death brings peace and somehow takes care of that hostility. Now, it seems like we need a little bit more background information to understand what is really going on here. And with international students, because a lot of the students that we work with are not Christians, I often start at the beginning, and I found out that that often works really well. So let's start at the beginning. And if I mean the beginning, I mean creation. Let's go all the way to the beginning. God, in the beginning, created everything for good. He says it every time, right? Like, this is good, this is good. Then he created people, and he thought it was very good. And we see this picture of God being in a community with all of humanity. That's true, it's only two people, but it's all of humanity, right? And I think we have that picture of God wanting to have that relationship with all of humanity. But early on, things go wrong, and we often talk about that. It's the S word, right? Sin happens, makes us uncomfortable. What does sin do? It breaks the relationship between God, and that's what we often talk about. That's kind of our main focus in church often. But it breaks all kinds of other things. And one of the things it breaks is the relationship between people. And we see that as soon as Adam and Eve are out the gar- outside the garden, we see their sons, one son killing the other. And I'm Cain and Abel, right? And so if you want to talk about broken relationships, that's about as broken as a relationship can get. It goes really quick from there. Then before we know it, we get to Noah, where God looks at all of humanity and is saddened. He says there's evil all of the time. He has favor on Noah, saves Noah and his family. But after that, it continues on again. Before we know it, we're in Babel, and again, people are not obeying uh, God. There is this big problem of sin. And so God chooses Abraham. God says to Abraham, and I'll, I'll quote that here, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. But it's really interesting, because what God does, he takes, he separates Abraham. He says, okay, I'm going to turn you into this people group. So this seems like language of separation. But then he says, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. So separation doesn't mean, okay, we're only going to have God's people here and everybody else has to kind of figure it out for themselves. There's a very specific purpose for Abraham that all people will be blessed through him. If you look at the Old Testament, the phrase all nations is used 180 times. Now, I haven't read all 180 times of them, but most of the time it is about pictures of all nations worshiping God, how Israel has to be an example to the nation so they will come and worship God. After Solomon finishes the temple, he has this prayer that the people of Israel might be following God so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. In Psalms, over and over we see a picture of nations coming to worship God. In Isaiah 56, it says, those foreigners who will keep the commandments, um, God will give them joy in the house of prayer. Their sacrifices will be accepted. 
for my house will be called a house of all nations. So we think pretty clear right now, right? It, all nations should be reached. Um, the Jews should have figured this out. It's in the Bible. But obviously something went wrong because otherwise Paul wouldn't have to address this issue. I think there's a tendency for people in general to create in and out groups. We do this in elementary school, like some people over here, or some people over there. It gets worse often in middle school. Um, but I think we even do it as adults, and we don't do it on purpose. A lot of the time we're not even aware of it. I noticed that with our ministry. We've been doing this for seven years, and uh, somewhere around, initially when we started, there was this like little openness. Everybody is welcome, and everybody had that attitude as well. But as our group grew, and people started to get to know each other, they started to become a little bit more like an in-group. I'm going to hang out with the people I know. And I had to figure out how am I going to break this because it doesn't create a place where other people are going to feel, um, feel accepted. They'll come and they don't leave anybody to talk with and they'll leave. Um, I even feel that like when we do that here, like I think it's great that we say uh, before, uh, during the, I think it's before the announcement, we say, Let, let's go to somebody you don't know yet. But if I really look at how I often I go to somebody I don't know, I think we kind of go to the people at least I know a little bit, or I've, I've talked to before, right? We tend to just go to the people that we know. And so we, we easily start creating in and out groups. But then we shouldn't forget that the Jews had good reasons to be a little um, afraid, a little upset with the nations. We read through their history, there's always nations that come in and uh, take them into exile, destroy their cities, and at the moment that Paul's writing this, there is Roman oppression. Um, in, in the Netherlands, we, of course, like much of Europe, had to suffer through the Second World War. And uh, my great-uncle and my, my grandpa lived at the time in a place called Rotterdam. And that was one of the first places that, in early on in the war, was bombed. Uh, the center of it was bombed to pieces. And both my grandpa and my, my uh, great-uncle were firemen, and so they were in the midst of it. They saw it all. Now, my, I, my, I didn't meet my grandpa because he really passed away before, he was, um, before I was born, but my, my great-uncle, uh, I did know, and he, he was never able to forget the Germans, which I could understand because he had lived through it. But what I found really interesting was when later on I was able to see some of the pictures, there's some video uh, out there to, to, to see the city being bombed, I felt there was anger and hostility in my own heart, and I had to go after that. And I found out how deep that is, right? Hostility is not something, it, you can kind of inherit hostility. Like you see in, in, in the Bible too with the, Samar the, the, the Sumerians, that um, there, people don't quite know anymore why they hate these people, but there's this history of hatred that's been happening, and these walls of hostility have been built. And I think to some extent that was what was happening there as well. And so Paul talks about the hostility. But it is not the way it's supposed to be. At a certain moment, um, Jesus, after so, so, uh, Palm Sunday, goes to the temple. And what he sees in the outer court are people uh, doing business. They are changing currency from outside the temple to temple currency. They're selling doves so that people can do sacrifices. And Jesus gets really upset. There's this picture where Jesus throws over tables and he starts getting mad. And some people feel that's really disturbing. Others say, like, wow, Jesus, go. But what he says is, 
the scripture says that my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nation and you have turned it into a den of robbers. The main problem wasn't necessarily that they were doing business, even though they shouldn't have been doing that in the temple. The problem was that over a period of time, the separation between different people groups in the temple had grown. Initially, there was a priest, and there was everybody else. And that was the separation in the temple. What started happening is that over time, separate, more separation was created. Women had to be over here, the nations had to be over there, and now what they did, the one place where the nations were still allowed to worship, they had turned into a place of business. And if you've ever tried to pray in a busy marketplace, that's difficult, right? If you go to the farmer's market and let's say, okay, let's do some quiet time, that's going to be difficult. They were throwing a barrier for the nations to worship. And just to make it abundantly clear, in Matthew 28, 19, at the end, before Jesus goes up to heaven, he says very simply, go and make disciples of all nations. So now we know the Old Testament says all nations should be reached. You see Jesus saying this, again, you think now it's clear. But obviously still, Paul has to address this issue. So why? Just in the way, as I said at the beginning of creation, just afterwards, sin broke the relationship with God and between people. Jesus' sacrifice took care of that, but there's still something we need to do. Yes, we have now access to God, but we still need to say yes to Jesus. In the same way, yes, the hostility has been broken between people, but we still need to step on to, to our neighbor and, 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 and maybe say sorry for the hostility that's been there. Uh, some of you know about Urbana, which is a mission conference that's been happening for, I don't know, 50, 60 years. It happens every three years. And um, there's a bunch of internationals that come there as well. And so um, I don't know when it exactly started, but it started having specific prayer groups for either nations or regions. So there's not enough Europeans, so they just put all the Europeans in one room. But there's lots of Japanese, so they'll have one room for the Japanese. I believe it was 2006 where the Japanese, uh, they had been praying and they wanted to worship, but they had no worship um, uh, things with them, no, no keyboard or a guitar. And so they asked the Koreans, and the Koreans said, hey, we can come and join you. We'll, we'll play some worship, we'll worship together. And as they were doing that, one of the Japanese students stood up and said, like, I, I can't do this because I first need to apologize. Now, if you know a little bit about East Asia and the Second World War, you know that the Japanese in the Second World War have done some horrendous things, and they haven't apologized for that. And a lot of the other countries are still super mad about that. And so he stepped forward and he said, I want to apologize, and I want to ask for forgiveness for what my people have done to you. Then the Koreans started crying, and they're like, but we want to ask for forgiveness for the hatred that we've had in our, in our hearts for like 50 years. And not, they were probably not 50, but uh, like 20 years, they're students, right? But it had this hatred, a little bit like what I had when I saw that, that picture of Nazis bombing, bombing Rotterdam. And so they asked both for forgiveness, and then they were able to worship without the barrier, that wall of hostility there. And they have done it ever since 2006, where they give the opportunity to these students to, to worship together. There is an actual barrier, there's a wall that can be removed. And the question comes up, do you want to remove that physical wall? And uh, every year they have said yes, and they do this. So we need 
to still choose him. Jesus took care of us, but we still need to choose him. The story, of course, continues. The, um, after Jesus' death and resurrection, we get to Acts, and we see that the early church is still struggling with, should the Gentiles become Jews? Should they start acting like us? Should they be circumcised? Should they eat the things that we eat and not eat the things that we're not allowed to eat? And there comes the story of Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is a Roman centurion in the Italian regiment. Um, what that means is that he is powerful, and he is, for the Jews, the embodiment of Roman oppression. This is not the first person you want to go talk to. But it also describes this picture of, of Cornelius worshiping God with his household, which is probably not individual, like, household probably didn't mean family in the sense of that he, he was married. Roman soldiers weren't allowed to marry, so it's probably friends and servants that he had there. But they all would be devout worshippers of the one true God. He gave money to the poor. He, he would pray daily. And so at a certain moment, an angel appears to Cornelius, and he says, send two servants to Peter, who will be in a house of Simon the Tenor. You'll find him there. And so Cornelius sends two servants, and they start walking. It's a bit of a, bit of a walk, so the next day they, they get there. And in the meantime, Peter is on the roof. These were flat roofs, so he could even fall off. He's a flat roof. He could just sit there. He's, he's a little hungry. Uh, it's around lunchtime, right? And he, he falls, the Bible says, into a trance. And he sees this sheet being like let down from heaven with all kinds of animals on it that are considered unclean. So, for example, a pig would be not something that a Jew was allowed to eat. And then there is a voice that says, Peter, go get one of those and kill them and eat them. Uh, this is to Peter, is like horrendous. Like, he has learned from the very early moments of his, uh, that he can remember that he is not allowed to do this. And he says, Lord, I cannot eat this. This is unclean. And the voice from heaven says, do not call unclean what God has made clean. This happens three times. The sheep is lifted up into heaven, and Peter is left with, what the heck was this? I don't understand this. In the meantime, the two servants arrive. Uh, Peter, by God's spirit, hears that the servants are there. Go down, because I sent these people. So he goes down. He in, invites them into his house. They, uh, the next day, because again, it's a long journey, so he has them over at his house, and the next day he goes to Cornelius. And when he gets there, I imagine that he expects just Cornelius to be there, but no, there's more than just Cornelius. His whole household is there. So he didn't quite expect that. And then Cornelius bows down and starts worshiping Peter, just to make it a little bit more awkward, right? And he says, no, 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 don't do this, Peter. Like, I'm not God. I'm just a man just like you. And he lifts him up, and he, he says, he goes into the house of this, this Roman centurion, and he says, you know that according to the scripture, it is, I'm not allowed to go in here. This is considered unclean. Peter is now adding to the awkwardness, right? Just making sure you guys are unclean. But God has just told me that I shouldn't call anyone unclean. So Peter is starting to get this. So why did you send me? Well, Cornelius said there was this angel. He told me that, you would, that I should send for you because you have something to tell us. And then Peter says the following, I now realize, realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So this is very 
similar to everything we've just seen in the Old Testament, everything we've seen Jesus do, but to Peter, this is a light bulb going on. And so Peter then tells the gospel story to these Gentile worshippers, and while he's doing that, the Spirit falls on these people. They start speaking in tongues. Peter brought some believers, Jewish believers with them. They are amazed. They have never seen the Spirit fall on Gentiles. And Peter says, well, why shouldn't we baptize them? I mean, they got the Spirit, so just as well go and baptize them. So you think, well, from this story, now it is abundantly clear. God wants all nations to be included. And, and Peter has seen this. And still, it continues on. Peter backpedals. A little later, he says, like, under the pressure of these Jewish groups that say they have to be circumcised, he says, yeah, you're probably right. Paul gets on his case, says, no, you're, you're backpedaling. You shouldn't be doing that. God has been abundantly clear. And so he writes Ephesians, and he says, once and for all, you Gentiles are included. You don't have to become a Jew to follow, to follow God. You're becoming, and then he uses the phrase, a new humanity. And that's a really interesting phrase. I heard somebody saying that the way to look at this is we, we have this saying that we want people to join us at our table. Let's make some room at the table. And we do that. And I think it's often a good thing. Like with you have Thanksgiving um, that we do with international stu students and multiple families here have participated. And we, we literally make room at our table in our house so internationals can come and join. But this goes one step further. This is not about making room at our table. It is creating a whole new table at which everybody can be invited. That's why Peter, or, or Paul, uses this example of a temple being built where everybody is being checked together. This new temple, this new thing, where Jews and Gentiles have this equal uh, part in, even though they're different. And that, that can be difficult sometimes, because I think we start with the right intention, but we don't fully include people into the thing that we're doing. Back in Holland, we were part of an international church, uh, which was like a 30-minute train ride away. But once in a while, we felt it was a little bit too much to bother to get all the way over there. So we'd go to our church that was just five minutes around the corner. And it was a Dutch church, but they also had international. Well, they wanted to reach out to the international community. And they come up with an idea to make room at the table. And they did that through translation. They had somebody in the back with a microphone listening to the sermon in Dutch, translated into English. And then the people in the, the internationals in the church um, had a headphone on and they could understand what was being said. And I think that was, I mean, that came out of the right heart. I think they were really doing things um, that, that helped to get more internationals to come to church. And so this was great. But what happened, and I saw this consistently after church, was that instead of these groups being mingled, you would have one group of Dutch people on one side and you had one group of internationals on the other side. It didn't help to create one new humanity. It split the group up in two. And so this church is struggling with that. How do we deal with that? And their solution, and it's just one solution, they said, let's initially once a month do a sermon at a slightly later time on Sunday in English. And we're going to invite both the Dutch and the internationals. Now, for the Dutch, this was a little bit of a, a step, right? I mean, a lot of Dutch people are able to understand some English, speak some English, but still way out of sight their comfort zone. And so they did that, and the Dutch people and the international people that came were able to create a community where they worshipped together, they understood each other together, and they were able to be that one new humanity. After the service, everybody you saw was one community. And I think that is kind of the picture that Paul 
is giving us. We don't have to become, in that case, the international doesn't have to become Dutch. Or here, I don't have to become American. We can still have our own identity and be different from each other and worship the same God. So what do we do with this? Well, first, we, most of us, we're Gentiles, right? We're not Jewish. But now we can be part of God's people. That's just super good news. We can come as we are to God. Secondly, we are called to be witnesses to the nation, wherever they might be. They might be here in Pullman. There's lots of them. They might be around the world. And uh, we're asked to cross cultural barriers. And that doesn't necessarily always have to be in other nations, even within the United States. There's lots of cultural differences. And it can be super culturally awkward to go to your neighbor. It can be uncomfortable. And then I think one thing that I've been struggling with is often I want to invite people into this community. And I think it's a great community. But for some internationals, that might not necessarily be the best for them. Uh, Phil and I, I don't know if Phil's here right now, we've been reading a book um, a, a while back uh, by David Watson and another Watson, I forget the other guy's name. But um, he brought up a really good point. <clears throat> a lot of the time what we do specifically when we do international student ministry or when we do ministry overseas is that we take this one person and say, hey, you need to hear about God and take him into our church community. And they become more like us. It, for us it's comfortable because this is our terrain. We know how to do church here. And so it's more comfortable for us and they learn about Christ and they might say, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. But then they're not very effective witnesses to their own community anymore because we didn't just try to help them to follow Jesus. We tried to make them more like us, to adjust them more like us. A little bit like what the Jews wanted to do. You need to be circumcised. You need to do these things that weren't necessary for the Gentiles. Instead, in some cases, not all cases, maybe we should go to what they call their silo, their silo of people. Let's say we have somebody from Armenia, Let's go to this Armenian group and say, hey, let's, let's meet up with you one-on-one. -on -one. Hey, maybe you want to invite a friend and go to the place where it's culturally awkward um, because maybe this whole group can come to follow Jesus. And you see this in the Bible over and over. You don't see a lot of individual conversions. You see lots and lots of whole families coming to Christ, just like we saw with Cornelius and his household. So as the worship leader wants to come up and, and play another song, I have one question to leave you with. What changes do we need to make to reach everybody in Pullman to be part of that new humanity? How can we make sure that we include everybody, even if they're culturally different, even if it's awkward to cross that threshold, to be part of that new humanity? So I'll leave you to think about that while we do a little bit more worship. Sorry, I stole your... Yeah, yeah. 